Welcome to episode 39 of the Multidimensional Evolution Podcast with me, Kim McCall. My guest today is Paul Wallace. Paul is a speaker, researcher, and author of books on spirituality and mysticism. The focus of our conversation today is his most recent book called Escaping from Eden, in which Paul re-examines the long-standing idea that extraterrestrial life forms may have played important roles both in the original creation of humanity on this planet and in subsequent cataclysmic events, which could perhaps be regarded as kinds of resets. Think of Noah's Ark, for example. What makes Paul's contribution to this field especially interesting is that he has spent 33 years in the Anglican Church, including as a church doctor and an archdeacon in Australia. So to have someone from such a background question, or rather reinterpret the biblical creation narrative, is especially intriguing. And I say reinterpret the biblical creation narrative because it was inconsistencies in the Bible translation that alerted Paul to the fact that the word that is generally translated as God actually seems to have other meanings, at least in parts of the Bible, which makes certain passages in the Bible much more coherent. From there, Paul examines other ancient texts, which all point towards creation events involving intergalactic visitors, as well as destruction events involving such visitors. So in this conversation, we discuss aspects of different mythologies, contemplate why we sometimes struggle to shift out of a dominant paradigm, even if we have data staring us in the face, consider what it might mean if our history includes a series of near-extinction events, and generally consider the range of evidence pointing towards human extraterrestrial interactions. Paul also explains how these explorations have influenced his understanding of God. There is of course a lot of room for alternative interpretations when reviewing big picture historic questions. So as always, don't believe in anything, experiment, research, and always use discernment. Paul, lovely to have you. I'm looking forward Good to looking forward to um, this discussion, which ticks a number of boxes for me, including my anthropology and my um, interest in ancient history, um, alien life forms, and uh, yeah. And one thing I'm curious to get into is um, uh, multidimensionality and to what extent that feeds into your your ideas but um oh wow okay good topic yes well uh i guess i'd like to start a bit with your personal position though because probably one of the uh intriguing aspects of you writing a book about um the possible origins of human life in with with extraterrestrial influences in one kind or another is that um, you started or you spent a long time being a, a Christian uh, pastor, I believe. Yes, priest. I'm not quite sure what the right terminology is. Yes, that's right. You could use either. Either, okay. Um, at the same time, I realised from your book that getting to the place where you've come to with this book also has it's not really novel. Like you already had interests in that as um, 
as a, as a young as a young lad. So to be, be interesting to to kind of uh, explore a bit more about your story of how these themes played out, how you find you found yourself in conventional Christianity and then moved back into this less conventional space. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks, Kim, so much for having me on the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I know we'll bounce back and forwards on a lot of topics here. But to start there, yes, I've been 33 years in Christian ministry. And for much of that time, I was working as a kind of a church doctor. Uh, I was an archdeacon for the Anglican Church here in Australia and spent 15 years of that as a theological educator. And for all of that time, my ministry involved teaching from the Bible. So my head was always in those texts of the Hebrew canon and the New Testament, interpreting those, seeking to understand them and share that learning journey with whatever congregation I was part of at the time. So that's one of the starting points for my research today and the book Escaping from Eden that's resulted from it. And in all the time that I was preaching on those texts, you've got when when you've got the discipline of having to bring a sermon on a Sunday, there's a certain pressure on you to make sense of what you're looking at. But most preachers will be aware of things in the texts they can't quite make sense of. And so I had 33 years worth of those, hmm, I must look at that again, kind of moments and places and a little log of texts that I knew I had to drill down into because mm. I hadn't, I knew there was something else going on there that I hadn't quite got my head around. Could, can I just jump in there? Can I just jump in there? Is, is there kind of when you're a priest and you're, as you say, it is a fair bit of pressure having a little speech every Basically, every week you have to come up with a kind of lecture, in a sense. Um, is there some kind of reference books where you will go and, you know, today I look at these chapters of the Bible and some authority has interpreted them for me and will give me some wise insights into what they mean? Is that, was that how you, you've got, I imagine you've got some resources? Yes. Well, yeah, most pastors or priests will have a, a wall of books in their study and among those books will be commentaries, which are exactly what you're describing, where great minds through the centuries have looked at the same texts and done study on them and looked at the background of them and hopefully come up with some helpful thoughts for you to get your head around what's going on. And uh, I am smiling as I say that because most preachers will tell you they will be preaching on something. They'll think, oh, my goodness, what's going on there? And when they go to their commentaries, that will always be the question that's avoided. <laughs> the, the knotty problems will be uh, perhaps acknowledged, skated by, and then on to a more obvious point. And certainly I found when I sat down finally with the text of Genesis to drill down into some of these ET questions, I realized that there were some very, very key questions of translation that have really been very diligently avoided for the best part of 2,000 years, and I could go to Jewish commentaries or Christian commentaries, and it was the same. And there was a bit of a taboo around some of these questions. So as I was researching Escaping from Eden, I got into conversation with some top academics. I needed people with more doctorates than I have to help me 
look at these translation questions. And um, they were very nervous of the taboo questions for the most part. Um, perhaps the one exception was a guy called Dom Henry Wansborough, who was the supervising editor for the New Jerusalem Bible, which is a, a Roman Catholic translation of the Bible. And that translation is very open about issues around the words the Bible uses for God and what's going on with them and why one of them is a plural and where those stories have come from. And that was one of the rabbit holes that I went down to start answering questions I had about the anomalies in the texts and how that might relate to questions of whether we're in a populated universe. So yes, those books are there, but the fact that they were tiptoeing around these various points only made me more appetitious to yes. get into what was really going on. Yeah. And so would it be fair to say, like, I, I get the sense in, in parts of your book kind of follow trajectories that have been trodden before by people. You mentioned Eric von Däniken a few times and um, the sort of interpretation of old cultures through an, uh, an extraterrestrial lens has been around for a while. But uh, I got the sense that this focus on especially the plural uh, terms used for words that have often been translated as God in the Bible, is that, would that be kind of the, uh, the new space that, well, the thing that first kind of really opened up your, really caught your attention and then a point that you pursued uh, in a kind of a unique way? Yes, that's really the linchpin for me, uh, the questions around the word Elohim. And it was the work I did drilling down into that that was really my red pill and uh, opened me up to a whole new world. And for me, what emerged from that word Elohim, which, as you say, it's, it's the earliest word we can find in the Bible has been translated as God, but there are some big questions over why we would translate it that way. And in fact, in conventional translations, there are some texts where it will be translated as angel or angels, demon or demons, false gods, chieftains, landlords, and then in other texts as God. And as soon as you realize that, you, you raise an eyebrow and ask, well, how do they know what it means in which text? Is it really just that when the Elohim appear to be uh, in charge, that it's God, and then it's something else in the other text? How have they come to that? And why is there that elasticity in that word? When I looked at it etymologically and considered what would happen if I just read those stories using the root meaning, what became very clear very quickly is that the Elohim, which I'm arguing means the powerful ones. The stories of the powerful ones in the Bible absolutely parallel in summary form the stories of the sky people in the Sumerian stories, the Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, and Assyrian stories. And when we began noticing that in the 1800s, which was really as soon as we could translate the cuneiform tablets from those ancient cultures, it became clear very, very quickly that the stories of God in the Bible were based on the stories of the sky people, not God, in the Mesopotamian stories. So this was a big shock, and it came at a sort of embarrassing time, I think, for Christianity, which was busy trying to shore up its sense of authority 
over and against the incursions of science. And so biblical inerrancy uh, was the word on the street, papal infallibility, that doctrine was created to try and respond to the effects of Charles Lyell, the elements of geology on the origin of species by Charles Darwin. And so for in the middle of all that conversation, some scholars to come along and say, oh, didn't you know the Bible's actually based on somebody else's book and the God stories are based on stories that are not about God at all. It was kind of a direction the church wasn't ready to take, so much so that it's nearly 200 years since we've had the translation key and realized that the Bible stories are based on these others, but that information hasn't filtered through to the average person in a church. And one of my motivations for writing Escaping from Eden was to speed that process up a bit so we can get onto that page, break that taboo, and then ask what the implications are of these stories of sky people, which are repeated in cultures all around the world, and with that translation issue addressed, repeat all through the pages of the Bible. So there's a couple of points I'd like to kind of branch into from what you just spoke about. So the first thing is, when did you become aware? As you were a priest, were you aware already that, um, maybe I should check, are you you're no longer a priest or are you still a priest? Because I'm referring to you. Oh, once a priest, time. once a priest, always a priest. Okay. And still very much pastoring. I don't lead a congregation at the moment, which I must say gives me more freedom to write on topics that are a little bit more controversial. So I'm, I'm stewarding the advantage I have and putting this material out just to push the envelope a bit, right. I hope, and invite more people into the conversation. So, so you haven't been excommunicated or anything like that for these? You can hold <laughs> Not these at this stage. And still be part of the church. All right. Um, yes, you can. Okay. Um, well, that's nice to hear. So uh, the, the Sumerian connection, were you already aware of that when you were studying the Bible yourself and you were um, uh, preaching from the Bible? Did you, or did, is this something you became aware of in, in doing the work on this book? Well, doing the work on this book, Escaping from Eden, I found myself kicking myself a number of times for things I'd been dimly aware of and had never thought further about or, or taken the time to reflect on. So I was dimly aware that the biblical stories had some kind of a relationship with the Mesopotamian stories. I remember putting sentences in my essays at Theological College that, that acknowledged that. I was dimly aware of the place of Plato in Christianity and the fact that he opened up a bigger universe and that that was part of the conversation of Christianity at the beginning. But I hadn't thought much further about that. Been too busy, you know, working hard. And so there are a number of things that I was a little bit aware of, but I hadn't sat down and thought through the implications. And I, I, I was annoyed with myself for not having done that because you could, I think, ask a lot of pastors or priests, anyone who's done a theology degree, are you aware of the Mesopotamian stories being somewhat similar to the biblical ones? And they'll all say yes. Are you aware the biblical stories are probably based on those? And they'll say, um, well, yes, I think I was aware of that. Are you aware that those stories are stories about another species from another plant? Well, I, you know, I'm not sure. I can't quite remember. I haven't thought much about it. And that was exactly the boat I was in. And now I'm thinking, how? How could I have let those things just sit there unexplored 
for so long when in fact they're so important because when you do drill down into those questions see those parallels it really does open up a whole new world of possibilities and overturns some things some habits of thought and belief that have become very ingrained in modern christianity but i found if you go right back to the beginning these questions of who are we are we in a populated universe was our evolution interfered with by another species Uh, are we conscious beings before we become material beings is there life before life after are we in contact with other kinds of being all this was part of the mainstream conversation of christianity in the beginning and it took nearly 400 years for christianity to narrow down into an orthodoxy that excluded some of these rather important and interesting questions Mm. so um it, it speaks really powerfully to the consensus, the, the power of consensus reality, uh, I feel that. And it's probably something it that so many of us can relate to, that, that we have kind of niggling sensations that certain aspects of the story don't quite stack up or that there's some other information that we are aware of. But because everybody else around us, we're part of a community and we all kind of stick to the same narrative, those other these other bits of knowledge don't seem relevant until we eventually, you know, like in your case, there was a a whole process where you had this time to just reflect on it. Um, Yes. The power of group think is very powerful. And I think, you know, I was just saying how, how could I, or how could any pastor not spend time drilling down into those things? Well, if you're serving a, a community, serving a congregation, you really have to serve the things and give your time to the things that build that community up and strengthen it. And so these things can give the appearance of being uh, an indulgence or extracurricular or even somewhat threatening if your group is really bound together by a bunch of conclusions. So, yes, the, there can be that pressure not to yeah. not to explore these things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I would like to uh, just maybe if you could explain a little bit the relationship between the Sumerian texts and the biblical texts in terms of uh, the age, for example, that we have for, for the Sumerian texts. Uh, and I guess it's interesting to note, right, for, for myself, I have no attachment to Christian beliefs and uh, I find it very easy to understand or to just accept that of course, there was old stories that were recorded over here. They were part of the people that were kind of part of the same cultural uh, block or region as where the biblical stories later emerged. doesn't seem very controversial that stories get passed on and recorded and so on. But I guess if you are a, yeah. a really a, a faith-bound Christian, then I suppose you are meant or you view the book, the Bible, as... Uh, this authority that's directly communicated by God, right? So that I imagine that creates some conflict in in being able to hold those those two truths. It does, yes. If you hold that fundamentalist view of the scriptures as being like an in a bubble authority, as if dictated by God, then this kind of conversation uh, can be quite challenging. But then any conversation, if you just go to your, your denominational theological college, you're going to find those conversations challenging because all your pastors will be trained 
in uh, information that is contrary to that that bubble view. But the relationship, and you ask about the dates, if you look at the adventures recalled in the Hebrew canon, many of those play out in a time about three and a half thousand years ago. The Sumerian stories, um, they come from a culture that's twice as old as that. And their texts from that period actually refer back to even more ancient events. So there's that timeline. But when you start reading the translations of the cuneiform tablets from the um, Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, and Assyrian civilizations, the dependence on the Bible on those is, is really very obvious because the Bible really does give a summary form of those stories. All the detail of them, all the layers of them is in the Mesopotamian stories. And that's why it was such an embarrassment in the 1800s when the translation work began. And at that time, scholars only had to point out the parallels. They didn't even have to go as far as saying the Bible's dependent on those to find themselves out of a job or excommunicated or whatever. It's not like that today. And you can go to Bible translators and theological colleges, even of quite fundamentalist church networks, and those points will be acknowledged. Um, the question is, have we then thought through the implications of that dependency? Yeah. <clears throat> so that's nice, right? There's been a shift from uh, literally suppressing the possibility to have those conversations to at least being able to to be open about them um one of the there things there's been a huge uh, i'll just yeah. acknowledge a, a bigger shift that's happened on the part of the roman catholic church and that is for a long long time discussing the implications was strictly forbidden and if you got as far as discussing populated universe you could expect yourself to be burned at the stake. And then in 2009, I mean, they did stop burning people at the stake. I'm thinking of 1600 when they burned a guy called Giordano Bruno, who argued for a populated universe. Right. You get to 2009, and there's been a not just a shift, but a 180-degree turn with spokespeople on behalf of Benedict XVI saying all these questions of populated universe, who are we, where have we come from, what company are we in, uh, they need to be back on the table. We need to be looking at them again, and we need to be getting ourselves ready to not only acknowledge, but actually welcome the presence of extraterrestrial civilizations. So that's more than a shift. That's a 180-degree turn. And so I do have to take my hat off to the Vatican for doing that. And I regard that as um, a kind of an act of disclosure, because if that's what they're willing to say in public, um, you want to know why. <laughs> what do they know that makes that action make sense to them? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable for, for an institution that has had such a long history of really oppressive um, groupthink, as you said. Yeah. Uh, that's a significant shift, absolutely. Um, one of the things that, uh, because my my day-to-day uh, -day job is really as a forensic anthropologist and linguist in 
uh, Aboriginal um, native title land claims. Um, I was a little bit disappointed in, in, in your book for myself that I couldn't trace back some of the translations. So, you know, you provide translations or interpretations. I, I, I read them as paraphrases of various scripts, including the, the Sumerian texts. Um, the Popol Vuh, which we might sp speak about a bit later from the Mayan civilization. Um, and, uh, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, what are the words that are interpreted like that? And where, where's the translation come from? So I'm guessing because you're very um, uh, explicit in translating certain terms, for example, I, I know with the Popol Vuh, you mentioned the term engineers for some people. Um, I'm not quite sure with Sumerian terms right now, but you do use words that very explicitly refer to spacecraft or, or sort of things like that. Um, yeah. I'm guessing that if it, not many, if not, not all official translators at least, will interpret the text in that way. So I would be interested to find out a bit more yeah. about your, where you, you know, what the sure. sources are for your translations. Yes, definitely. Well, what I did in, in Escaping from Eden, I've retold the stories in the light of what I think are the right translations of various words. And I decided in that exercise that I would only use translations of particularly the, the cuneiforms that are very, very broadly accepted uh, at a scholarly level. There, there's a range you can go to, but I thought I'm just going to use the ones that are almost universally accepted as reasonable translations and then let those stories really speak for themselves because I didn't want to get into you know, a fight defending a particular translation against another. I thought I'll go for the ones that are accepted because the stories themselves are sufficient to carry the points that I'm making. And I thought, really, that was the only route I could take because I don't have enough PhDs to, to do it another way. So I would just go for that consensus and then say, let's think about the implications of, of these things. So when you get to Babel, for instance, and I'm arguing for a translation that has that as a gateway for the powerful ones, it's actually the story that confirms that we're talking about a stargate. And certainly when you read the Sumerian alongside the biblical, that becomes pretty clear. So that's, it's often from the story that I get my confidence for lining up with a particular interpretation of a word or a particular translation that um, I'm championing at that point. Same with the phrase, those who engineer for the, uh, the beings as they're described in the Pope of Vu. It's in a very broadly accepted uh, scholarly translation. So I thought I'm, I'm going to stand on the shoulders of those guys okay. at this point. They're the ones with the PhDs here. So um, that, that counts in my favor rather than me standing up against people with multiple PhDs and say, I know better. I didn't think that would wash. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, the story of Babel is interesting that, uh, so in case anybody's listening who is not exactly familiar with the story of Babel, maybe would you just like to briefly outline yes. it and then I want to make it. Well, the version I was familiar with, of course, is the version as it's translated in the Bible. And, and the, 
the story of the Tower of Babel, which comes in Genesis 11, appears to be a moment when uh, God gets very angry with human beings because they've breached zoning codes and built a building that's too tall. And his punishment is so dramatic, it destroys the progress of human civilization for we don't know how long. I mean, that's where the stories of beginnings ends. And then the story of Abraham emerges in a completely different age in a world that we would all recognize. Read the story more slowly and with questions addressed around Can I just, the Elohim word. When you say he, he um, destroys the progress of human civilization, it's, it's where the language has become scattered. Yes, that's right. It creates, we, that's we right. speak a common language and we all speak diverse languages. Yes, that's kind of the, the way we remember that story that there's civilization, it's a technological civilization, at least able to build a very tall building. We're all speaking the same language. Things are going great. Uh, And then our ability to speak one language gets messed up. And I think in people's imagination, what happens in that story is that after God does his thing, uh, one person comes away speaking Spanish, another comes away speaking Italian, another Swedish. Of course, that's not the case at all. What has actually been broken is our ability to communicate with each other. Something far more primordial has happened to humanity to arrest its progress. If you can't speak and understand, then you've kind of been bombed back into a pre-Stone Age condition. As if everyone has suffered some kind of a stroke and can no longer talk, it's a deeply, deeply violent act. If you can imagine living in a city with your family uh, one moment in a technological society and in the next you're in a place where you can't understand your daughter she can't understand you the people at the shops can't understand you and everything grinds to a halt Um, it's a profoundly violent act and when you read the story reflectively and realize that's the scale of what's happened and then ask why would a loving god do that That's when we come back to the translation and realize this is not the story of a loving God. This is a story of the Elohim, the powerful ones, visitors from somewhere else coming and saying, we don't want a technological human race. Read it alongside the Sumerian, and it becomes clear we don't want a spacefaring human race. In the Bible, we've got a word that means gateway for the powerful ones. There's some mysterious phrase about reaching the heavens from this structure. The Sumerian story tells us what reaching the heavens means. It means that 50 technicians can dispatch 300 people from that place to their stations in the stars, what I believe we would call space stations. That communication between space, sending people from there, the word Babel, these stories finesse each other. And so what we realize is that when you put those pictures together, we have a, an interference from another presence, the Elohim, the powerful ones, that has destroyed a civilization that perhaps we know next to nothing about, but it's a technological one. And it had arrested human progress in a way that is almost unfathomable, an incredible act of violence. And not, of course, the only act of phenomenal violence in those first 11 chapters of genesis um 
Yeah, I mean, that's there's a lot of violence in the Bible, I guess, in, in that early part, and I um, and probably many other parts. I actually don't know the book that well, but um, uh, there is a an, uh, an assumption in what you're saying, which is that there is a loving God, which I guess is the assumption that is kind of carries Christianity, right? It's a big piece of Christianity. But um, yeah. for me, when I was reading your interpretation of the Bible stories, one of the things that resonated a lot with me working so much with Aboriginal cultures is that in, in Aboriginal Australia, there is no, on the whole, there is no concept of a loving God. There is uh, no. a universe populated by creative beings that in many ways are much like human beings, other than that they have these capacities to shape the earth and create animals and that they eventually created humans. But they they will fight and they will be jealous and they do all these kinds of much like humans, which also mm. is what we know from pretty much all uh, indigenous cultures, including the, the European, the Nordic gods, yes. the Greek gods, all that. Uh, and so in that context, when the Bible is read, instead of thinking about somewhere looking for this loving God in there, but to just look at the powerful ones as the Elohim translates yes it suddenly aligns really nicely with um the creation stories from all around uh the planet it does yes it does that's quite right and really there's the the idea the story of a loving god isn't in the hebrew scriptures isn't in what we call the old testament until perhaps you get to some of the later prophets where, where I think they do have a concept of God, the cosmic source, and they believe that that source is a loving intelligence. The question is, does that concept bear any relation to the earlier stories? And um, the answer I've come to is no, the earlier stories are not about that at all. And that's not where the idea of loving God has come from. These earlier stories are, as you rightly say, another iteration of stories that have been curated by cultures all around the world that are about beings that are similar but different to us, but they're not gods and they're not God. So the separation of those ideas is, I think, really, really important because there was uh, an an edit done and again there's a very broad scholarly consensus surrounding this that there was an edit done over the hebrew scriptures in about the sixth century bce to bring them into a single work with a single theology and that theology was one of there is only one god one ultimate source of all things and these stories are all about that god uh, because Judaism had become monotheistic. That was the theology it wanted to teach. And that edit sort of tried to airbrush out the vestiges of another story or other stories that were there and massage these texts until they almost looked like they were talking about a God of that kind. Um, but it does not quite work. And the problem with it not quite working is that if you read the stories of some of these powerful ones doing violent things, unpredictable things, merciless things, genociding things, and read that as a God story, well, 
now you've got a God who, on the one hand, you think is loving, and on the other hand, is like an abusive, violent, alcoholic father, and you have to worship him. Well, I think psychologically, that puts humanity in a horrible place. If you put a child in a home where the parent is violent, um, has to be tiptoed around because of their mercurial moods, it eviscerates the confidence and happiness of that child. The child becomes enslaved to that adult's moods. And I think that's kind of what happens to the human race if we believe we live in a universe that's governed over by a being like that. And that's where this translation mistake takes us, and I think has taken us through many centuries of faith history. And it justifies, it's been used to justify all manner of of violence. Oh, yes. In the name of a wrath. That's right. God. Of course. If you worship a God who will do absolutely repulsive, violent things for his ends, you can draw a straight line between that and us doing the same and often doing the same in the name of God. So it's a really dangerous and a horrible and unfortunate equation that was made. And that's another motivation behind my writing Escaping from Eden, because I think a lot of believers know there's that dissonance there. Something does not fit and they're very uncomfortable. A lot, a lot of believers simply avoid these old texts because of the obvious questions. And Escaping from Eden says, no, don't avoid them. Understand them. Understand these texts are about something completely different. Yeah. Um, slight aside, because I don't think you touched on that in in your book, but it's a thing that a uh, point that I've in, found intriguing. I'm curious whether you have any thoughts on that. There, you mentioned that editing of the volume. I also um, remember reading about the one of the I think they called it the councils of Constantinople or something, where they um, also and I don't know if that's the same era that you're thinking about, but where they agreed on a certain uh, linear te- or interpretation, and that at that point they removed references, for example, to reincarnation out of the biblical uh, book. Is that are you aware of that? Is that um, ring any bells? Or? Yes, there was quite a lengthy process of, of narrowing orthodoxy down and defining it, and right at the beginning, there were. Um, very significant church leaders who argued for, you mentioned reincarnation, for instance, argued for reincarnation, said they could argue it from the canonical texts, they could argue it from other texts that didn't make it into the Bible as well, they could argue it from the Hebrew scriptures, Uh, and there was just a process of deciding which were the books that were going to be in the Christian canon. Would we glue the Hebrew scriptures on to the apostolic writings to make a Bible of Old Testament plus New Testament? What do we do with these other ideas that were championed by what we now call the the Gnostic groups and the Gnostic texts? And it really happened in stages and stages and stages. And the Council of Constantinople was one of the later stages, just uh, buttoning everything down. And probably the final step in that process was uh, Emperor Theodosius in 381, Uh, intervening in a theological debate, uh, that really locked orthodoxy down and united it with the powers of the empire so that everybody is very clear now that they lived in a world where you've got God, the emperor, the bishops, us, 
and it's this sort of pyramid of authority that's yeah. formed and this tight these are the books that have the right answers and you don't even read the other in fact we can't find the others anymore they've probably all been burned or buried uh, and that's the world you reach by the end of the the 300s ad and so those conversations there's been a process of deciding what can be asked or talked about people have been excommunicated you said the wrong thing and it was in that kind of a way that we got rid of conversations about things like reincarnation that were part of the mainstream Christian conversation at the beginning. Yeah, okay. And also, as you describe, a real integration of religious order into state order and, and a sort of a means of reaffirming hierarchies and control. Yes, definitely. And it was that kind of step that meant that the other views had to go underground the other texts had to be buried and so it it really fractured um society and religious thinking in quite an interesting uh, and unfortunate way where you've got secret societies curating texts that have all but been destroyed and then you've got the mainstream with the bible we're all familiar with but all those other storylines and questions and wonderings they all found a way of surviving somehow and so you know in 2009 for the vatican to say let's put some of these back on the table that have been taboo for nearly 2000 years is a really significant uh, alteration mm. yeah well i'm curious how that'll play out i mean it's not something as someone who isn't in that space i hadn't really heard about it um you know I, i've heard that um uh, Pope Francis, it is right at the moment, has has sort of shifted Vatican's positions on a number of things, including homosexuality. Um, but you know, I haven't paid attention to how that's filtering through the church, what the ramifications are, because there is a, I don't know if it's a billion Catholics. There's a lot of a lot of people that, in theory, should be influenced by those kinds of shifts. Yes, definitely. And it's funny, I mean, I, I'm not a Catholic, I don't particularly follow what the popes say, but it caught my attention that the most conservative pope in my lifetime was the one responsible for saying, let's put all this back on the table and talk yes. about it. They did do a lot to promote that conversation and effectively say that uh, the Roman Catholic Church is ET friendly, uh, and yet people, people did miss it. And it's rather similar to we've had some really significant disclosures in the last couple of years from uh, spokespeople for the Pentagon in terms of their engagement with the UFO phenomenon. Very interesting, significant statements. But a lot of people have sort of missed, missed those because I guess we're all busy with other things. And if it's not the thing we're interested in, yeah. it, it can be in the news cycle one day and we've forgotten it the next. Yeah. Well, and it's a bit like what you described before. I, I believe there's many of us that it's registered somewhere and yet we're just going on with the overall consensus ideas of, oh, well, it doesn't matter. It's probably just a hoax. Whatever it is that we've got going on, it doesn't really seem to. Yeah. You know, it's right there. If you look at it, you can read the, the, the CIA or the, the Pentagon kind of releases. They're very explicit. Um, they are. That's it doesn't right. cause a big stir, right? And I guess it doesn't directly impact us in our everyday life. That's probably a big factor, right? It's not like it has an immediate impact on 
um, our work, our marriage, our children, any of those That's things. true. And, I mean, if as an individual you're listening to the news one day and you hear that um, credible organisations around the world are dealing with, quote, off-world vehicles not made on this earth, unquote, your ears might prick up and you might think, what, what, what have they got? What are they dealing with? And then you say to your mate, what did you make of that? Oh, I didn't hear that. Well, that's the end of that conversation. If you don't have somebody else you can go to and say, what do you think this means? Then what do you do with that thought? You can't do very much with it unless you've got a lot of spare time and then can go on a, on a Google fest or a YouTube fest and, and begin joining some dots that way. But if it's not part of the mainstream conversation, then that's one way that our wanderings fail to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Now, this makes me think of a, it's a bit of a leap from our conversation, but this is a thought that um, came up for me as, we were, as I was reading your book, and that is you, you uh, refer to the fact that there are records and indications that there's been multiple major um, uh, near extin extinction, extinction events. So there's been multiple situations, sort of like the Noah Ark story of flooding or other huge, massive uh, changes to the planet that uh, kind of took humanity back, reduced the population, destroyed technology and got us kind of starting again. And, um, and that's an idea that's been around for a long time as well. There's been a lot of records around mm -hmm. that. Uh, I believe in, in say, in, uh, some Mesoamerican cultures, there's stories of seven or eight different kind of cycles of these events happening. Uh, I was trying to remember the name of there's a Russian a Russian uh, scientist many years ago who had this same kind of model of these uh, I think he identified seven kind of uh, almost near extinction events happening in the in the that Velikovsky? Yes, that's I think that is the that the sound right. Yep, um, and it did make me think if we took that seriously, if we really held that as embodied knowledge that this, is, this might happen at any mm. time. We don't know that we don't know if there was a big lead up to these things, something like climate change maybe, um, mm. or something like a pandemic. You know, we don't know if there was anything like that or whether they just came like that through a media strike. Or, um, but if we held that as embodied knowledge, would we show up differently in the world than we do? Yes, I, I suspect we would because we're so resistant generally to considering that possibility. I, I think it's a really um, disturbing thought to people that a civilization like ours could be snuffed out. And if you have a view of the history of the planet that says civilizations like this have been snuffed out before, then you're sort of making the same statement. But there are lots of reasons why we might suppose that that has happened, that there has been a sequence of civilizations on planet Earth. It is a very old idea. You, you mentioned um, Mesoamerican uh, accounts of this. It's, it's in the Vedas as well, this, this idea that there are, are cycles of civilization. And 
it's in the Bible as well. I think by the time you get to Genesis 11, you've possibly got three planetary resets being recalled. If you just look at the remains of megalithic cultures that are underwater now, that would have been above water no more recently than 10,000 years ago, well, that's enough to tell you there's a civilization that we don't know a lot about. People who've studied the emergence of agriculture on planet Earth have long acknowledged there's an anomaly in our timeline, a sudden massive leap forward that really looks like there's been an intervention to take us from living on the planet as animals to living able to farm and, and build cities and such. So where's that come from? Would that come from a previous civilization? Well, if you go to Southeast Turkey, uh, you've got megalithic evidence that might be the case because you've got the closure of one culture evidenced by the remains at Gebekli Tepe. And then just down the road, this first farm that Manfred Hoyne and teams from the University of Az in Norway, the Max Planck Institute, uncovered in 1998. You've got things like that that you can look at. So you've got texts, you've got underwater cities to go to, this agricultural question. Plato certainly believed that there was a, he said every 5,000 years or so, something will happen that will impact the planet to such an extent that it takes civilization back to a near zero. And we have to go again from there. But the thing that gripped me personally more than any of those things, and they're all very interesting rabbit holes to go down, is that when you compare world mythologies, ancestral narratives all around the world, so many of them begin on a planet that is flooded and shrouded in darkness and in need of rehabilitation. And then other powerful beings arrive and start the rehabilitation work and nurturing life as we know it on planet Earth. Genesis actually follows that same form. Again, when you do the translation work, it's very clear. You've got beings arriving in a craft over a flooded planet. And incidentally, a flooded planet that exists before any of the sequence of creation in Genesis 1 that most people are familiar with, the let there be light story, let there be light, and then you've got the sun, the moon, stars, everything goes on from there. But before any of that, planet Earth is already here in a state of chaos and flooded and shrouded in darkness. And that's what the powerful ones turn up and start working with. The fact that that's the same in so many stories and the details are so curious so many of the stories say that this flooded planet was here and then these beings arrived with technology that created vortices of wind. And that's what they began working with to impact the environment and start clearing land. And they've got all different metaphors and images by which they tell the story. But it, Could, can, it's you give an example, can you give have, an example of that? Like, so, for example, I'm assuming you're most familiar with the Bible. When you talk about these vortices of wind and, and the creation, how just yeah. illustrate how that is reflected, how it's spoken about in the Bible and sure. Okay. I'll I'll go back to the Bible and I'll I'll get there from a couple of other points. So if we go to the Filipino story, their account is of a flooded planet and then Tagalog arriving and hovering over the waters. Tagalog is like a giant hawk that just hovers over the waters. And then with its wings creates vortices of wind, 
to clear water from the high ground and start clearing land for habitation. That's the Filipino story. You go to the Sumerian story and you've got four winds that arrive over the waters and start driving them back to clear land. Um, you've got the, um, I think this is the Edo story from Nigeria of a being coming down from space on a chain. Again, something visual is being described. They're comparing it with technology they had. That being arrives, and then his sons clear the water away using winds to create islands and start creating habitable space. Now go back to the Bible, and we've got this flooded planet shrouded in darkness. And then something called a ruach turns up and starts doing the rehabilitation work. And the word ruach appears to be something that moves through the air and creates a very strong breeze, uh, a very strong wind. Interesting coincidence. That word has actually survived in Amharic. Um, There's the word roha, which means exactly that, a, a fan something that will create a movement of air. And the Bible itself tells us more about a ruach by how that word is used later in the scriptures. So by the time you get to Ezekiel and Moses, ruach is being described as something that's silvery in color with a glass canopy, makes a loud noise when it moves and has wheels that can move in any direction. And it's a craft that can carry at least two people. And uh, when it lands, it creates quite a disturbance and the ground under it will shake. So you put all those things together. You've got technology arriving called a ruach that creates some kind of a wind that plays some kind of a role in the rehabilitation of flooded land. And you've got it there. You've got it in Sumeria. You've got it in Nigeria. You've got it in the Philippines. That's just an interesting lineup of coincidences that catches my attention yeah yeah and it's not the only lineup of coincidences right if you you, you line up a no. lot of different a lot of different um stories there so and i think and the, there's a there's, sorry this yeah. I, I this is just my brain something i find really exciting yeah, yeah and it relates to the technological aspect i just love the fact that in the filipino story they said this this thing was like a giant hawk because it hovered like a hawk without moving any wings. It was just hovering there. And the, the word used in the Hebrew text, I think, is melahefet, which means exactly the same thing. This ruah hovered there without moving any wings. And I find that really affecting because it, it tells me that what's being carried here is a visual memory. It's not that a story was told and written down and that story's got passed on from place mm -hmm. to place. It hasn't traveled that way. The metaphors are so different. It's something that was seen. And I wonder if visual memory actually gets us much further back in our history as a species than anything that would have been written down. Can you just elaborate on that? When, when you say visual memory, obviously that will only survive if it's passed on either orally or written down, right? Or well, presumably you mean, you mean it's, it's passed on somehow. Well, I, I'm open to that possibility. Certainly communicated orally, 
and the clues of the oral process are then the the metaphors that we've got. But this hawk-like connection is there in the Philippines and it's there in the Hebrew scriptures. But you certainly get the impression that when you see the parallels that something has been seen that is now being described. And I don't think it's too hard to imagine that we could have ancestors who were less proficient in writing or speech who could still carry that visual memory in their culture. You know, be careful of the giant hawk is something I think our ancestors could have said to each other long, long, long time ago. Yeah. You, you refer to the passage of Ezekiel in elsewhere. You describe um, uh, what, what's recorded in, in that part of the Bible. And that, when you just talked about the hovering, I don't think you talked about hovering, but it, I did actually, you know, I had your translation and I went actually to the, to the text. Um, and it's certainly uh, the way he describes, because he, he talks about these beings moving without turning. So you get this image of them just changing direction um, and uh, other aspects of, of how he describes it. You know, you could imagine some kind of fantastical being, but uh, the interpretation of it being some kind of craft uh, actually makes more sense than some kind of fantastical being when you start. It does it because Ezekiel tells you what the thing does. <laughs> Uh, he describes its landing. He describes getting into it and being flown places. And he describes the noise it made when it moved. So I think if you come at it kind of with a with a blank mind to the text, it's not difficult to spot this technology in it. But it is described in quite a fantastical way. And I think translators who've come at that with no technological grid uh, and translating a text that they believe is a spiritual text uh, for those reasons, it's been very confusing. But for, for us, we have technological frameworks in our minds. We have technological language. I think it might actually be easier for us to identify when technology is being described to us in some of these ancient texts. I was listening to someone just yesterday interpreting that, um, that thing that Ezekiel saw and trying to interpret it in a more biological way. And um, I could see there were elements in there that might prompt someone to try and do that. But a little question that I would raise is, if, if it's biological, if it's not technology, then isn't it a little bit surprising that NASA would have a patent on the wheels described uh, in the Ezekiel thing. Uh, Josef Blumrich went to that text with an engineer's mind and thought, well, what if I do schematics of what's being described here? And he came up with something that was so coherent that he actually pursued the thing and on the 5th of February 1974 obtained a patent on the wheels described in Ezekiel. So when others come along and say, oh, the Ruach is the spirit of God, which is a, a traditional orthodox way of handling that word, I would say, well, that's lovely. How does NASA have a patent on the spirit of God exactly? <laughs> that's not quite coherent. What, what does that What he's got mean? a patent on is technology, and it's the omnidirectional wheel that's right. described in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
What, what, what does that actually mean in a, in a more orthodox concept, the spirit of God? Is that a, an entity that's distinct from God that represents, is that like the Holy Spirit or is that a different thing? Yeah, it's a good question because the word ruach itself sort of changes how it gets used the, the further you get into the Hebrew texts. It, it, it sort of morphs into a word, word that means wind or breath. So that connection is preserved. Uh, and then it's a breath that can affect things on the earth on behalf of God. And so it's understood as being um, an attribute of God or an agent of God's will. And then perhaps further you read in, it's the idea that this is God's spirit in the same way that you and I have a consciousness or something we might call a spirit. And that equation begins to get made. But you can see the evolution from, from a craft that creates a wind to a wind, to God's wind, God's wind that does things, God's breath like your breath. But there's this evolution of the idea. Uh, but its roots, I think, are in its first appearance in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, where uh, a craft turns up and starts doing technological things on our planet. Mm. So as I'm sitting here, I'm, my mind is kind of going through some of the Aboriginal creation stories that I'm familiar with. And um, so I was re- as I was reading as well, it, it, there is nothing explicit in the stories that I know that lends itself readily or, or, you know, on the surface of it in quite the same way as those biblical texts to seeing uh, extraterrestrial life forms. There are some very deep knowledge. So there are stories, for example, in the Flinders Ranges um, area of South Australia, very arid area now. There are stories that depict, uh, well, the foundation of those stories is that there's huge forests there. And... um, uh, in the story, there's an ancestor that burns, makes a big fire to alert some people to his presence. And it's really only been through geological explorations and through through mining, you know, that we discovered that where the person built this fire, there's big brown coal reserves, that there is actually ancient evidence of ancient large forests in this arid area. Uh, there's other there's other stories which mm. are remarkable in terms of the time depth. You know, we're talking about probably hundreds of thousands of years of geological shifts that are somehow recorded in, in oral history. Uh, and then more recent things like the, the flooding, the Great Barrier Reef, how that was created, the, the Ice Age, there's stories about, about all of that. Um, so, but yeah. while I'm sitting here, I'm thinking there's nothing explicit, but then I, I'm wondering whether those analogies that you use, there's a lot of stories about birds, right? There's a lot of stories about eagle, hawk and crows, common theme found across Australia of, of interactions, often quite violent interactions between those two. And perhaps that would be an avenue that would need to be pursued. It feels like there's another step that might yeah. have to be taken to interpret those stories in that light. I would, I would love to explore that. Um, I have heard others suggesting that some of the animal emblems in Dream Time Story may be metaphor for other kinds of entity. Um, it's something I'd love to explore more. Let me ask you, because I've been really interested to find a few examples in Native American story of 
people groups who credit the arrival of certain others with the beginning of their culture and with the really basic um, technologies of living as a human society, you know, which plants are good to eat, which are good for medicines, when to plant, when to harvest. And so there are groups, I know the Cherokee and the Lakota people have stories like these of others arriving from somewhere else to teach their ancestors these things. Do you, have you found anything like that in Australian Aboriginal story? Um, yes. Uh, it's, again, it's interesting. Well, I think one would have to look at them, maybe interpret them in, cert- in a certain way. There's definitely a recurring theme of usually a ancestor uh, travelling through and teaching, introducing certain things, right, introducing how to initiate people, introducing people how to create certain foodstuffs. You know, in, in much of the tropical Queensland, for example, a lot of foodstuffs are poisonous unless they're treated a certain way and then they become good to eat. So there's stories of ancestors mm. going through and teaching the people how to do that. Essentially, everything of human all human laws and ways of showing up and how to make tools and everything was at some point taught by ancestors, right? That's kind of the, the, the creative ancestors. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I was hearing just recently uh, an Armenian story of beginnings and their story of beginnings begins with an ancestor who uh, began everything, taught them everything. And you look at the ancestor and he seems pretty impressive. He seems pretty advanced. And so my I raise an eyebrow when I hear that. And I want to know more about that ancestor. How much was he similar to us? How much was he different? Where was he born? Where did he come from? And just drill down into some of those stories. And that's certainly somewhere I'd love to go in my research for future books because Part of what I hear from people who are reading Escaping from Eden and they contact me, a lot of people contact me and say, oh, this is so interesting. This ties in with something from my own culture and here's this story. So I now have a huge uh, body of more stories I need to research and get into where, again, there's these really intriguing little correlations that suggest there's something here you might want to look at. Part of a story that's perhaps not been told for a long time. Mm. Yeah, uh, definitely. There's definitely uh, some some interesting universal. That, that's that's the thing that's fascinating, right? The universality of of a lot of this. Um, the other the other thing that I so this now let's let's talk a bit about this multidimensionality concept because that is something that is really integral to uh, Aboriginal culture here and really Indigenous cultures anywhere, right? And that you can these ancestral beings are still present in the land. So they're still uh, here, not in a physical space most of the time, although people will also sometimes talk about having quite literal physical encounters um, with ancestral beings when they're out in the bush. Um, They might talk about animals transforming themselves into somebody Mm. that looks something that looks like a person, having some kind of often brief but profoundly significant interaction uh the rainbow serpent is you probably aware of this concept of the rainbow serpent very integral to much of 
uh, all of Australia really usually associated with water holes and, and, and water pathways. I've now met a number of people very, who very um, matter of factly and assuredly say that, yes, they've seen them. They've been out at a certain water hole and they came out and they described them much like I would imagine a Chinese dragon with the sort of the whiskers and the, and the mane. Uh, I've met people that talk about riding them, having, having ridden on them, travelled from one place to another, which then, of course, makes me think about uh, this Ezekiel story, person riding this, you know, whether the, maybe there's something uh, around that. But, well, I interpret a lot of that as through, through a multidimensional lens, right? So because that's been my area of research, mm-hmm. my experience, that there are a whole host of different consciousnesses who take all manner of shapes and form that manifest in the non-physical uh, dimensions and that can, at different times and different ways, interact with the physical dimension. Is that a part of your, your space of exploration as well as essentially the DNA-based, you know, human creation, invention sort of focus on extraterrestrial life? Well, Escaping from Eden is certainly more focused on the the nuts and bolts um, aspect of the story. But my introduction to what you're talking about was really through Celtic story. And I was very struck when I started hearing things about Aboriginal Australian story after I moved to Australia were some of the parallels between that and um, the Celtic. And there are Nordic parallels as well, I'm aware of. But in the Celtic, worldview there was this thing called the the cedar which is the the other time and it was a new concept to me when i discovered it and i realized it seemed to hold together ancient past mythological past where we all came from and then somehow it's related to eternity uh, and then somehow it's the realm of god as well and bit by bit, uh, I was piecing together the idea that this this eternity thing, the seether, was actually occupying the same space-time as us, but almost like out of phase, uh, on a different vibration. And the ancient Celts, including ancient Celtic Christians, had exercises they would do to shift their consciousness so they could be- begin perceiving the seether, perceiving this other time, getting information from it, getting power from it. And the idea of this, this parallel dimension that is past, present, future, and immediately adjacent to us, and somehow we can tap it, I found absolutely fascinating. So when I started hearing about Dreamtime story when I came here, I started noticing this this overlap, and and again, it's it's there in the Norse idea as well, and it's not something I've pursued particularly. But one reason I'd like to do it is that there's another connection with some of the stories that I'm looking at, and that is that the cultures that have curated this very interesting story of where we came from, and our contact with other kinds of being, have also curated shamanic and mystical traditions that have to do with elevating our consciousness. And some of those traditions use um, methods and modalities such as control conscious breathing, 
such as ingesting psychoeffective teas, um, uh, smoke and smoking ceremonies, and people who I haven't uh, experimented with any of these other than control conscious breathing. But it interests me as I compare notes with people who've done that, that they begin reporting the kinds of experiences you were just describing, perceiving kinds of beings that they've not seen before, but that they believe are occupying the same space. And that when, when they take the tea or when they do the smoking ceremony, all of a sudden they can hear from them and see them, get information from them, get guidance from them. And so that has intrigued me that the, again, it's the correlations of people from different cultures using different methods, reporting the same experiences and the same kinds of being. That's caught my attention. And I realized that Plato, who people... I mean, it's hard to name somebody with greater credibility in the world of philosophy and progress of world thought than Plato. That's where he got a whole chunk of his information from, from the ingestion of a psychoaffective tea and interacting with beings in just the kind of experience that you're reporting there from Aboriginal Australian story. So it's not something I've studied a lot of. I've become aware of it, and it's certainly something I'd like to explore further. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a deep, it's a deep space. I love that. I uh, see. I don't know, even though my my cultural background is Irish German, I actually didn't know much about the Celtic kind of uh, um, mythology, worldview, ontology, and so that concept that you describe uh, really sounds uh, that 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 time space that is past, present, future, and right here. Uh, is exactly as Aboriginal people will talk about the dreaming. And I don't know if you're familiar with with W.H. Stanner, who was a um, uh, prominent Australian anthropologist, but he coined the term every when to describe the dreaming. And that is... That's a great word. When you... Yeah, yeah, it relates very much to what you just described about the Celts as well. Hmm. Um, so, look, to wrap it up, Paul, I, I guess I'm curious uh, now where for you as a, as a priest who has branched out so widely um, into your understanding of reality and questioned so much of the Bible, uh, including the words that are usually translated as God, is where does God sit for you now? What is your... Um, uh, and in relation to those texts, if at all, it still has relation sure. to those texts. I think probably the the person who has helped me most as my thinking has uh, morphed and transitioned is Plato. He had a God concept that makes sense to me. He used the word God really only for the idea of the cosmic source, the uh, what we might call the zero point that generates everything. And his language for that cosmic source was really interesting. He believed that in the beginning was consciousness and that consciousness preceded everything else. Uh, my ears pricked up when I heard that because of everything that quantum research seems to be pointing to at the moment about the possibility that consciousness is, is the prime organizing principle, not time, not the properties of light, 
but consciousness. Mm -hmm. This is a massive imaginative shift for our culture to get our heads around that. But two and a half thousand years ago, Plato was saying that, that in the beginning was a unified field of consciousness. And his language for that implies consciousness, intelligence, love, harmony. That's his God concept. And he said the material universe came into being in order for that consciousness to express itself and experience itself. The Apostle Paul actually gives a definition of God when he's talking to a Greek audience in Athens. And he said, by God, I mean the uh, the source of the cosmos and everything in it. So I, I, I am comfortable with that concept. I feel very relieved that it, it bears no relation to the anthropomorphic image that's come from the Elohim stories, which are stories of something else. I'm very relieved I don't have to defend violent behaviors um, yeah. in the name of a God. So it, it's, it's altered my concept of God, less like a person, uh, something much more cosmic. And it's, it's an understanding of God that I think is, I find it easier to meet people of diverse worldviews and talk about that that if I'm trying to defend the God of the Bible. So I have that concept, and I have had experiences all through my life that suggest that there is some level at which we are all connected in our consciousness that we can't quite put our finger on or can't quite understand. And lots of people have glimpses of experiences that suggest our consciousness is a bit bigger, goes a bit further than the perimeter of our, our bodies, enough to at least clue us that something else is going on. And so I guess the concept of God still has that sense of wonder to it, if I'm going to use the language of consciousness. Um, well, my, consciousness, my, is, yeah, consciousness is, has lots of wonder to it, right? It's it it's does concept. It is. And I, I love that about it because part of the effect of writing Escaping from Eden for me has been uh, I've got such an appetite on me now to explore and, and to probe things that I haven't had time to before and to uh, really to learn as much as I can while I'm able about, well, what is reality? Who are we? What is possible for us? And that's where I got, by the time I got to the end of Escaping from Eden, I was uh, writing a book that was less to do with our origins and more to do with our potential. Mm. That's a beautiful cycle, yeah, from the deep past into our future. I love that. Yeah. And also love the uh, love the observation about how interpreting God or understanding God as consciousness allows you to connect with people beyond different belief structures, right? Because, so for example, in my reference point, uh, I don't really focus on God at all, but I very much, uh, through having studied consensiology, the exploration of consciousness, really see, come to understand consciousness as the source. Consciousness then interacts with energy, which is everything that we know of as the material yeah. use. And uh, just to touch on the other half of your question, what I'm finding is that the people who are contacting me now through 
my website and wanting to get into the conversation, it's an incredibly diverse range of people. And the people who are coming to me are people whose, a lot of them whose worldviews are shifting, who are rethinking things and just needing to touch base with another person as they reframe their understanding of things. And it might not be they believe all the same things as me or have had the same experiences as me, but something has happened either recently or in their past that they're now thinking through and their world is shifting. And so my pastoral work now is with people in that kind of a space. So in the past, my pastoral work was much more tied in with people exploring God or people exploring Christianity or church. Now it's with this much wider group of people who are experiencing um, shifts in their world and are exploring the cosmos. Yeah, sounds lovely. It sounds like you're creating your own um, community then through really exploring those topics that you're passionate about. That's right. Yeah. So tell people where they can find you if anybody wants to you know, share their own stories sure. or, or have a chat with you more. My website is paulantonywallace.com. So that's Anthony with an H and Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulantonywallace.com. You can go there, follow the things I'm up to. You can contact me through the website as well if you'd like to get into a conversation. You can also find me at the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube and the Fifth Kind TV on YouTube, or you can go to fifthkind.tv. And you can go to Amazon, find Escaping from Eden, and you can share that part of the journey with me as well. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, wherever books are sold, grab that and we can get into a conversation. All right, lovely. It's been a really, really pleasure to chat with you, Paul. It's fascinating topics and I would be more it than is. happy to ever, uh, if you ever want to talk about the Australian side of things, to have a yarn anytime. Fantastic. Thanks, Kim. Much appreciated. I've enjoyed talking today. I really hope you got some value out of today's episode. If you did, why not leave a positive review on iTunes and share it on social media to help others find it. The tune Seeing Us Out is another one from Axel Tesliff. This one is called Akasha. You can find more information about today's guest on my website, multidimensionalevolution.com including any links to their work and their contact details. On my website, you'll also find my blog and information and reviews about my book, Multidimensional Evolution, which you can purchase in any good bookstore if you want to show your love for this show and get practical info for your own exploration of consciousness. Finally, please get in touch, whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics. I always love hearing from people, as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, or until you tune in again, I am sending you my very best energies. <laughs>